This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. And soon you'll hear how an ancient religious rule on whom we can and cannot marry created Western prosperity. Now, the heights of British politics look very different today, no longer the exclusive domain of an Anglo-Christian elite. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is of Indian Hindu background, London Mayor Sadiq Khan and now Scottish First Minister Hamza Yusuf are Muslims of South Asian heritage. So what does their success say about British multiculturalism? Professor Iftikhar Malik of Oxford and Bath Spa Universities studies immigrant communities. Despite all the early hiccups and still some criticism, multiculturalism, as we call it in the United Kingdom, has worked to the larger benefit of the country and especially for minorities and plural communities. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the situation was very different. Now we are seeing the second generation, third generation in diaspora, not only Asian diaspora, but also African diaspora, that we see people in politics, in education, in other professions, making their presence very much felt. And I think multiculturalism, when it was introduced in the 1960s by people like Roy Jenkins, People were hesitant. They thought Britain would split into many cultural ghettos, but that's not the case. I mean, I'm not saying the problems have gone away, but I think a person of Indian origin becoming the prime minister of the oldest democracy and a person of Pakistani origin becoming the leader and the first minister of Scotland and representing a party called SNP, which actually seeks sovereignty from the United Kingdom, this is a great achievement of this sociological model that we don't see working in many other societies, even in within Europe. Yeah, well, that is a very interesting point, because what has become, if you like, almost, not totally, but almost unique about the United Kingdom, that we can have a minority prime minister and a minority first minister. You know, we don't see this in almost any other Western democracy. To some extent, I think Canada and the United States and your own country, is, and New Zealand, of course, uh, might be following a similar kind of pathway. And under Nehru's tradition, I think India also has been maintaining some of these plural traditions, though there are challenges from what we call so-called majoritarianism. But I think Britain has set up a wonderful example, and it's not patronizing minority communities. It is giving them academic, professional, political and social opportunities. And I think people that you mentioned, and of course the uh, mayor of one of the largest cities in the world, London, happens to be of Pakistani origin. And as I know from firsthand, there are hundreds of councillors of Pakistani, Afro-Caribbean, African, Indian, Bangladeshi origins. And eventually you will see more people at the higher echelon of the British political setup coming from minorities. But we should also not forget the pioneering generation of immigrants from the subcontinent in Africa who had difficult time in integrating and establishing their roots. Well, I want to ask you about that because 
You talk about role models. What weight, though, does it put on the shoulders of Britons of uh, African background, Afro-Caribbean background, South Asian background, to be the model immigrant? I mean, it seems to weigh heavily on the shoulders when you're in a very public position, doesn't it? Yes, I think there are raised expectations and some people from the minority communities and different professions would say that they have to work extra hard to establish themselves. But I think this generation will make it easier for future generations to move into these positions. Of course, not every Asian or African or Afro-Caribbean can be the prime minister, but there are more opportunities. I mean, American society has opened up. The office of the vice president is being held by a woman first time, and she comes from a a minority background, Indian and African. So I think the Western democracies are gradually opening up. I mean, it is a long march from 1950s and 60s when you couldn't rent a house in a predominantly white Anglo-Saxon region, or you couldn't go into certain public places. It was a kind of unstated segregation, unlike the segregation that we saw in the United States until 1950s. So I think things are moving forward. Political systems are being responsive. Yes. What tensions, though, exist between, for example, a politician of minority faith, also, by the way, a politician of Christian faith as well, but this has been pronounced in the case of um, Hamza Yusuf in Scotland, the tension between wanting to represent in an authentic way a community that, for example, has some mainstream but traditional values around gender and his party's position, which is very liberal. I mean, are there these tensions between trying to be an authentic representative and also trying to be part of the liberal political milieu? I think you're right. There are challenges, and these are formidable, and I'm not trivialising them. I think in case of religion, many religious communities, not just Muslims and Hindus, are confronted with those challenges which liberalism poses, for example, same-sex marriages or having women as priests or ulama or leading, for example, prayers in the Muslim mosque or being on the committees uh, for Muslim mosques. And I'm sure similar other communities are facing these challenges. I know a few years ago, sex education was being frowned upon by a number of conservative groups from amongst religious uh, communities, including Muslims, Hindus and Christians. And one of the earliest political notable in Scotland of Muslim background, Mr. Bashir Mann, who wrote three books, one of them called New Scots, he had his criticism of gay marriages or teaching sex education in schools. But he was also a role model in his own way, and he laid the grounds for this kind of multicultural uplift. And today, Hamza Youssef is the benefit, or Anas Sarwar, who is the leader of the Labour Party in Scotland. I'm not saying that in their private life, these people have to you know, leave their religion. I don't think multiculturalism demands that. But I think in public life, they have to go along with the public sentiments. One of the other interesting points here is that the rise of Hamza Youssef and Rishi Sunak not only shows the ethnic diversity in British society, what does it say about the political diversity within minority communities? 
I think if you look at all these three people, you would see that they belong to three different parties. Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, is from the Conservative Party. And generally, the image is that mostly the immigrants support the Labour Party. But the next generation, or some of them who become well off, they prefer Conservative Party. So I think these ethnic communities, maybe the second generation, third generations, are even more diverse when it comes to their preferences for political parties. So that's another development. I mean, of course, Rishi Sunak and some of these people came from urban background. They were already well off and they could get into Oxford and Cambridge right away. But most of the Asians, Afro-Caribbeans and Africans were from working class. The positive thing here is that it means that no side of politics, no party can take particular communities for granted, doesn't it? Yes, you're right. But uh, within the parties, there is quite a bit of discussion. I mean, even in Conservative Party lately, there has been discussion about Islamophobia, that maybe some members, you know, in a very old style way, they could hold their own reservations. But there were issues of anti-Semitism when it came to British Labour Party. So there might be, I'm not saying every party thinks alike, but I think with the arrival of these people and these people in leading positions, I think they're also helping these political parties in Britain change in a very positive way. Professor Iftikhar Malik of Oxford and Bath Spa Universities. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report on air and at the ABC Listen app. About 5,500 kilometres separate Belfast and Jerusalem, but they may as well be a million miles apart in the way they've dealt with conflict. This week is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday peace agreement in Northern Ireland. Meanwhile, Israel and Palestine have plunged deeper into violence. Why is peace so elusive in the Holy Land? Ite Flesher works on education programs for the international organisation Seeds of Peace and he visited Belfast looking for solutions. I think in the Good Friday Agreement, before we get to the agreement, I think there was just the nature of what had happened before it. They'd had two failed agreements before the successful Good Friday Agreement and they'd done a lot of groundwork. They'd done a lot of dialogue within churches, within women's groups. Also in Northern Ireland, everyone speaks the same language, both the Catholics and the Protestants. So there isn't that language divide that you have here in Israel, Palestine, where we obviously with Hebrew and Arabic are not speaking each other's language. And I also think their solution was kind of a non-solution because the British felt that they won because Northern Ireland is still part of the UK. But the Irish nationalists also feel that they won because, you know, there can be a referendum in the future. So it's a kind of solution that both sides can read as a win rather than one side winning and the other side losing, which I think is essential to making peace. Do you notice today, and we've just gone through a week of violence and tumult that has upset uh, the period of Passover for Jews, of Ramadan for Muslims, Holy Week for Christians. Do you notice any similarities in the two situations, Israel and Palestine, and the troubles of Northern Ireland? 
I think there's more differences than similarities. Belfast doesn't have holy places, and Jerusalem has many, many holy places for different religions. And so in that sense, there's a much greater religious dimension to that. But look, the violence is the same. A bereaved parent is a bereaved parent no matter who they are. And I still remember when I took a group of kids for peace to Belfast, we went to an Irish festival where they were seeing a play about an IRA bombing that had killed a Catholic family and everyone there was in tears. And I thought, how amazing is this that 20 years after the troubles ended, you've got a room full of people here crying in empathy for the loss of someone for the other side. And I think we're so far away from that because obviously we feel a lot of pain here. You know, me as a Jew when an Israeli dies and and obviously Palestinians when a Palestinian dies. But To get to that level where people can feel pain at the loss of the other is a really, really big step to do. And I think what the Good Friday Agreement did was it built relationships and it built trust, not just between the people, but also between the politicians that led to to the co-governance that you've seen Stormont, even though that hasn't been such a great success, but sort of role modeling this idea of I have to care for everyone's well-being, not just my own side. There's also a point that you raise, though, in a piece that uh, was published on the website Plus61J, and that is that in Northern Ireland, they recognised, Protestants and Catholics recognised, they had a common home. How many Israelis, Jews and Palestinians, recognise they have a common home? We had the Oslo agreements that were signed 30 years ago where the governments did recognise each other. The PLO recognised the State of Israel and Israel recognised the PLO. But has that sunk down deep into the nation, into the people? I'm not sure. I think there's still a lot of... You had Israel's finance minister literally two weeks ago saying that the Palestinians don't exist. And you also have in, in Palestinian society a very wide belief that Israel shouldn't exist, especially not in its current form. So this idea of we're both home and we're both here to stay and we both have legitimate reasons to be here is very hard. And I think a lot of that delegitimization happens because of the reality, because of the power imbalance, because of the violence here. And a lot of people think my life would be much better, much easier, much more peaceful if the other side weren't here. Let's talk some solutions here because you work with young people What did you find in Northern Ireland that could work in Israel-Palestine when it comes to nurturing a sentiment, a desire, a passion for peace among the young? I think for me the most striking moment is what they did with their police force. In Jerusalem, almost all of the police are Jewish-Israeli, even though 40% of the city is Palestinian. When Jews see police or army, they feel safe. And when Palestinians see police or army, they feel threatened. And what they did in in Northern Ireland is they switched from almost all the police being British to now they have a mixed police force of Irish and British officers working together. And I remember a child actually asking a police officer who spoke to us, he said, you know, which side are you on? And the police officer said, he didn't say whether he was Irish or Catholic or Protestant. He just said, I'm here to serve the people of Belfast. And the child was like shocked because he never met a police officer that didn't have a nationality or or wasn't on a side that was just there to serve everyone. And maybe that's something people in Australia will take for granted. But I think here that notion of the people that have the authority to use power, which is the police and the army being there for everyone and being mixed, 
So having, you know, a mixed force, which would be unthinkable here at the moment because we are a long way from that, I think that gave a lot of hope of how things could be different. And a lot of what we do in the Kids for Peace program is not trying to water down or minimise the occupation or things that happen here that are wrong, the violence, the terrorism, all of those sorts of things. But we're trying to show the kids that there are people on the other side that want to listen and that want to understand and that want to share events together. It's currently Ramadan. We've had iftar meals, celebrating the feast and learning about the Islamic prayers, which for many Jews was the first time they've ever understood the significance of the fasting and and all of the rituals. I think each of these experiences through festivals, through food, through the summer camps that we do, show the kids that the people are on the side of human beings and they want to live together in a reality that's very different from the one we have today. And we hope that through coming to our program, we give the kids the thing that's the shortest in supply in this place, which is hope. You do mention the importance of Memorial Days. And of course, Israel is a country with a very deep sense of historical memory. What should happen on Memorial Days for both Israelis and Palestinians? This is very controversial because most memorials are obviously people remember their own side. I personally, for the past few years, have been going to a joint memorial on our Memorial Day, which remembers both Israeli and Palestinian victims together. It's a memorial that happens in one place, but is live streamed all over the country and many people watch it here and all over the world. But it's still a minority thing. A lot of people feel very confronted by that. But I think that's the only way forward. You have to remember that the suffering is not something that only happens to you. And and actually every year when I go to the Anzac Day Memorial on Mount Scopus in Jerusalem and I see representatives of the Australian government, but also the Turkish government sends people every year to there and they lay a wreath. And then the two ambassadors stand together and shake hands. And I think, wow, it took 100 years, but Turks and Australians are remembering what happened in Gallipoli together. And inshallah, maybe one day that will happen here too, because I think that's an essential ingredient to peace. Itay Flesher, an educator with the international organisation Seeds of Peace, and you're with Andrew West. We live in a part of the world that Harvard University biologist Joseph Henrik calls WEIRD. Now, that's an acronym for nations that are Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. And he says part of the reason for the prosperity is a 600-year-old Catholic rule about whom we should and should not marry. Joseph is the author of the best-selling book, The Weirdest People in the World. He's in Australia this week to speak at the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization. I've been looking at research and work suggesting that the structure of the family affects how people think, and growing up in different kinds of families can shape how we approach the world. Why were European families, especially in certain parts of Western Europe, tending to be monogamous nuclear families? But anthropologists know globally that's a very rare family structure. So if you look at a database of cultures that anthropologists have studied and and documented around the world as combined with historical data, you find that it's very rare. So most societies don't have any of the kinds of kinship traits that we commonly associate with the structure of the families in the West. Now, many people think that that occurs after the Industrial Revolution, right, after Western societies start getting richer. But actually, it goes back way, way before that. And there was a particular set of taboos and prescriptions 
prohibitions, you can think of them as, that the particular branch of Christianity that became the Roman Catholic Church began to impose upon the European populations that it was expanding into or had already conquered when it was part of the Roman Empire. So this program, which I call the marriage and family program, gets implemented gradually over a period of centuries in different parts of Europe. And you can say a lot about even contemporary Europe today by knowing about the distribution and spread of the Catholic Church in Europe. Yeah, well, one of the fascinating elements of the Catholic Church's approach to marriage and family, going back to the sort of five, six hundred years that you researched, was these taboos. And now there was a taboo particularly on marrying your cousin. First of all, why did they think that was a taboo? Lots of societies have incest taboos. And so the way to think about an incest taboo is we have innate machinery that helps us avoid having sex with very close relatives like brothers and sisters and parents. So that's that disgust reaction you get when you think about. But the societies have variously extended that to certain other relatives, and it's often extended to certain kinds of cousins. So those are typically by anthropologists called parallel cousins. And then people have preferred marriage partners with their what are called cross cousins. So these are two different kinds of cousins, but equidistant, right? Equidistance in terms of genetic distance. And what the church began to do was to taboo all marriages of first cousins, second cousins, and they gradually expanded the circle. So it included all the way out to six cousins at one point. And it also included spiritual relatives and in-laws, so affineal relatives. This helps show that it wasn't about any kind of genealogical relatedness concern, that it was about notions of social relatedness. But this forced people to marry more broadly, and as part of the stew that reduced European families down to monogamous nuclear families because it prevented them from building the links that so many other societies have built between families. It wasn't just a taboo on cousin marriages. Wasn't there the notion of, and it was um, in the church's interests, to spread Catholicism more broadly, and you do that by limiting the sort of marriage partners that you can meet in a very small area? Yeah, We don't know to what degree church leaders had this consciously in mind. I mean, there's a couple of quotes from Augustine of Hippo that suggest he kind of understood what was going on. But some of the other documents from the various incest councils where this was discussed repeatedly over church history, it doesn't appear that this was at the forefront of people's minds. But the idea is it may have actually contributed to the spread of the church by forcing people to marry other into other groups and then building connections. And then what those two people would have had in common was Christianity. So they would have had to forge new kinship practices based on what's common in Christianity. One of the other rules is you had to marry only other Christians. But this would have dissolved the tribal relationships. So if you, if you know European Roman history, you might know about the Celts and the, the various tribes that populated Europe. And those all disappear. And one of the things that I think is typically how tribes disappear is when they start intermarrying. And Christianity would have provided a forum where once they're all Christianized, then they intermarry to avoid the relatives, then the tribes don't make sense because everybody's intermarrying. Yeah, you say in the book that uh, Westerners became less tribal, more individualistic. I certainly see the loosening of those blood ties, but didn't this also mean forging different types of ties, new forms of association, new forms of solidarity, if you like? Yeah, exactly. So that's a key part of the story. So when you're broken down into monogamous nuclear families, you still have to make your way in the world and you still have to build new kinds of relationships. 
So part of the story is about the formation of impersonal institutions or impersonal institutions that aren't built around the idiom of kinship. Universities were built on this. There was a spread of new kinds of monasteries that were built on these kind of more impersonal rules. Charter towns began to proliferate. And then guilds, which were initially kind of mutual self-help organizations for strangers, you know, eventually they become occupational organizations, but they begin proliferating around 900, 1,000 CE. And how does this start to make the world? You can see where it makes the world more educated because I guess we become more curious. How does it make the world more industrialized? Well, actually, I mean, in the book, I make the case that actually you have to wait for Protestantism to get people a lot more educated and literate. Part of the story is, you know, there's this famous German sociologist named Max Weber. And Weber famously argued that Protestantism as a religion was core to the emergence of capitalism. So part of my endeavor was to show the current data supporting at least aspects of Weber's thesis, but then to say, how do you get Protestantism in the first place? So an extremely individualistic religion, you don't have intercessors between you and God, you don't have this communion of saints or this whole organization or anything like that. It's also mental state-based, so you get to heaven through faith alone, not through good works and faith like in Catholicism. So part of the story is you get this increasing amount of individualism, which opens the door for new kinds of faith. And then one of the things that Protestantism has that makes it so unusual is that everyone is, even women, are required to read the Bible for themselves and come to their own opinion. And the notion of a, a religion where the average person's opinion matters is really something novel, I think. Anyway, so this ends up leading to high levels of literacy, not because people realize the value of education, but because they felt everyone should learn to read the Bible. And once you can read the Bible, you can read lots of other stuff. And so you get the rest for free. Yeah. Do Westerners and non-Westerners think differently? So we had this label weird as a consciousness raising device. But one of the things I spend time on is showing that you can show variation using this idea just within Europeans. And you can also apply the idea to Africa by using historical Christian missions. You can apply it to India by looking at how rice agriculture affects kinship systems. And you can apply it to China by looking at the variation there. And in each case, you can show and explain psychological variation within each country. But yeah, so people do adapt to the institutions, languages, and technologies that they're grown up with. And this causes them to approach problems in different ways, trust strangers to different degrees, use intentions in making moral judgments to different degrees. They think about time differently. There's, there's this whole set of psychological differences that I lay out in the book. Yeah, this is fascinating. It opens up a whole new area of discussion for those of us who live in, you know, very healthy, thriving, multicultural societies, Australia, the United States, uh, Canada in particular. What happens when you get that mix of cultures? Do they feed off each other to build a stronger, more democratic polity? The details of that are, are highly variable. They certainly feed off each other at the level of innovation. So one of the things I take on in the book is why did the Industrial Revolution occur when and where it did? And there's now a large body of research suggesting that you know, the key to generating lots of innovation is to bringing together diverse minds and getting people to talk to each other over long distances or having people move across places, mobility, immigration, anything that gets the kind of free flow of ideas and, and ways of thinking across diverse populations can drive innovation. So in that sense, that kind of multiculturalism is the source of a lot of innovation. 
But of course, when people bring different norms and stuff, there's an adjustment period until you converge on the relevant norms, and that can cause social discord. Humans are innately inclined to sort of tribalize, so you're always trying to resist the tribalization inclinations that we see everywhere. There's been a lot of commentary about the decline of the West, the rise of South Asia and China. These are very socially conformist cultures, though, particularly China. Does this mean, given their strength, that the notion of weird may have had its day, Joe? That's not how I think about it. So weird was a consciousness-raising device to get people to think about their experiments. The way I think about the direction that different communities in the world are going is that it's more of the same in the sense of more cultural evolution. So somewhere like Japan was extremely culturally different from Western Europe, but then around 1880 in the Meiji Restoration, it began literally in some cases copying Western civil codes, Western practices, ways of doing things. And then, of course, after World War II, it, it adopted a whole bunch of stuff from the United States through force. And so what, what's emerged now is neither what they had before, you know, traditional Japanese ways of doing things, or the ways of the West. It's a new recombination. It's a new set of institutions that's going to create a psychology that doesn't look Western, but also doesn't look like traditional Japanese psychology. I mean, that's the way to think about it is something new has been created and there will be competition among societies as there always is. Something new has been created in China as well that has elements of traditional Chinese, but has also lots of Western elements. So the way they do universities, for example, aspects of the organization, the economy. So it's a new recombination. So we'll see how these different systems compete. On the flip side, Joe, I'm also looking at the resurgence of nationalism in Europe, which was the historic heartland of Christianity. Are these societies now losing what you say is a central feature of being quote unquote weird, and that is openness to the stranger? Yes, that's right. And, you know, of course, we've seen a lot of that in the US, and that's one of the questions that we've been focusing on in my lab is. One of the features of psychology that I'm interested in is uh, moral psychology. So roughly, moral psychologists have given us uh, some scales that allow us to measure people's psychology and put them on a scale from more morally universalistic to more morally parochial. Just in the U.S., you can see since 2008 that there's been a decline or a movement towards more moral parochialism, away from moral universalism in rural areas. Now, the urban areas of the U.S. have remained the same or even gone up in their degree of moral universalism. So anyway, you have this growing divide between rural and urban areas that's strikingly clear. So that's definitely happening. And then, of course, we ask, well, why is that happening? One is weather shocks. Weather shocks in general and climate change intensifies that. Places that are getting hit harder by weather shocks seem to be suffering more of this moral parochialism. Uh, reductions in mobility, when people don't move around as much, you get a more moral parochialism. Economic shocks can also do this. So we, we have some ideas about why that might be happening, but we definitely see it in the data. Professor Joe Henrik of Harvard University. He's a leading human evolutionary biologist. Joe's book is The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. Weird is an acronym. Joe will be uh, speaking in Australia also at the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization. Thank you for joining us on the program, Joe. Yeah, it was great to be with you. And that is the show for today. Find us using the search function at the ABC Listen app 
Thanks to Hong Jang and Isabella Tropiano. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.